Hello and welcome to episode 212 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. Remember to follow Turkey Book Talk over at Twitter, aka X, Instagram and or Facebook. There's Blue Sky as well. Big up anyone on there. In this episode, we hear from Alexander Christie Miller. He is the author of the book To the City, Life and Death Along the Ancient Walls of Istanbul, published this month, February 2024, by William Collins. Alex worked for many years as a journalist covering some huge stories here in Turkey, the fabrications in the Ergenekon Balyoz coup plot cases that were pushed by the Gulenists, the Gezi protests of 2013, the Somar mining disaster in 2014, numerous elections and the July 2016 military coup attempt. The book mentions all of these, but it's actually much more than that. It's a deeply reported, sophisticated meditation on contemporary life and politics in Turkey. It uses Istanbul's historic defensive walls, first built during the Byzantine era, as a structure around which to build a sprawling narrative delving into the present, the past and the turbulent lives of the locals who Alex found living or just trying to exist in the neighbourhoods around the walls. It's beautifully written and empathetic, just a terrific piece of work highly recommended and we talk about various aspects of the book in our conversation but before we get started I'm going to appeal once again for support it takes a lot of time and effort to read all these books prepare the podcast edit it and piece it all together and I do need listeners support your support to be able to keep doing it Since launching the podcast back in 2015, we've given a platform to researchers and authors working on Turkish history, politics, society, literature and the arts. Turkey Book Talk is completely independent with no sponsorships. It depends 100% on the goodwill of listeners like you. So if you are able to support, please consider becoming a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Supporting on Patreon isn't just a nice thing to do. It also gets you some pretty good extras. Those extras include a terrific 35% discount off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. As a member, you get a special code to use at the online checkout and you can use it to purchase any of hundreds of Turkey and Ottoman history titles either as an old-fashioned physical book or as an ebook. Turkey Book Talk members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. And finally, to members, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of each episode upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course, you'll be more than welcome to do that. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now onto our conversation with Alexander Christie Miller. He moved to Turkey to start working as a journalist for the Times of London at the start of 2010. That was an interesting and contested time to arrive here, when the optimistic standard international narrative about Erdogan and the AKP was starting to curdle, but when there was still a real air of contestation and uncertainty about what course Turkey would take. So I started by asking Alex to talk about first coming to work in Turkey and what it was like in those initial months and years. 
I came to Turkey. It was almost on a almost on a whim. I was working uh, at a local newspaper in in Crawley in Sussex, and I was doing shifts as a researcher on the foreign desk at the Times Times of London. And I got into the car one day at work, and I was listening to the radio, and they were describing a city and the food, and it was a neighbourhood in the city. They were describing the nightlife and the music and all that sort of stuff. And I knew I wanted to to go abroad and get into foreign correspondence. And I was listening to this, and I was like. Like, where is this place? This sounds amazing. And then you know the way when you switch in halfway into a radio program and you don't have the vital information of you know where they're talking about. And then finally at the end they said Istanbul, and I was like, right, okay, that's where I want to go. And I spoke to the Times, and as it happened, their their correspondent was leaving soon, and they um they said you know well you can pitch stories to us. And so that kind of sealed it, really. And so I arrived in Turkey. You know, I, I did a lot of reading and stuff, but I didn't have any kind of prior knowledge of of Turkey, any sort of deep connection to it before I moved there. And the first couple of months were very, very slow. The first sort of big story that broke when I was there was the Gaza aid flotilla, in which the Israeli commandos killed several Turkish activists, and there was a huge crisis. And I happened to be on the on the ground for that, and you know, I reported it for the Times, and they were happy, and so that sort of solidified things. And then you know, I went from there really. But um, it was a very interesting time because. When I arrived in Turkey, a lot of the journalists and academics and people who I spoke to beforehand were all pretty positive and upbeat still about Erdogan and the AKP. And, you know, there was this sense that, yeah, they're not perfect, but this is this is what democratization and normalization look like. And, you know, the, the direction of travel is pretty good. And of course, there were people who were questioning this in, in the international media as well, but they were often portrayed as kind of outliers and cranks and people who had who had got too close to the Kemalists and that sort of thing. And they weren't generally taken all that seriously. You know, it was pretty clear early on that 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 kind of narrative, you know, the wheels were falling off it. And I mean, the big thing for me and the, the sort of one of the stories which I covered a lot in those first couple of years were the Balios and Agenikon trials. You know, in the same way, they, they were being portrayed as a kind of part of this normalization process of subjugating the military. But it was very clear when you look closely at certainly at the Balios trial that that it was sort of outright fraudulent. And, and there weren't that many people saying this at the time. It was sort of there was a tendency sometimes for people to report the narrative and to say, well, one side is saying that this is a witch hunt. The other side is saying that this is normalization. And then stories would tend to be written in a way that sort of privileged the normalization angle on it. But, you know, it was sort of gradually becoming clear that this was, you know, this was not really the case and that the developments happening sort of below those headlines were were quite worrying. And that that really just accelerated through those through those two or three years. And, you know, the sad thing over the sort of seven years that I was in Turkey was that almost all of the achievements for which the AKP was touted in its early years were one by one becoming undone. So that was that was very sad to see. The idea for the book started to emerge towards the end of your time here, I believe, after years of reporting on the country. You write 
that, quote, this is a book about the old Byzantine land walls of Istanbul and the people who have lived around them, their history and their endurance to an era of relentless change. It tells a version of the tumultuous past decade and a half of recent Turkish history. So you use that and you interweave it really with historical episodes as well from past centuries to illuminate the present day. So the structure of the book is sophisticated and it has many different strands to it. Could you just talk about how did the idea for the book start to emerge in its initial form and how difficult was that to keep all those multiple plates spinning throughout the writing? <laughs> it was quite hard. I mean, it, it originally I had the idea of doing an essay about the city walls and, you know, I, I walked along them a few times and I was struck by what an extraordinary stretch of urban geography they are. I think that what struck me most and which which I think is something that you see often in Istanbul is that you have this sense of huge stretches of history, time stretching back into sort of distant periods and surviving into the present. And then right next to that, you have this kind of breakneck, incredibly fast change. And the way in which those two things seem to exist side by side, and you feel like all this history is is sort of on the on the brink of being swept away, and yet and yet somehow it's still there. That's this feeling I got very strongly at the walls. And, and originally I was going to do an essay about them, and then the more I went there and the more I walked around, I sort of thought actually you know the diversity of communities here, the variety, the the, the richness of the communities here would allow me to do a sort of portrait of modern Turkey. And I thought, you know, if this is going to be an essay, it's going to end up being a sort of massive one. So so why not why not make it a book instead? In terms of the structure, initially I thought that uh, that that you know I, I wanted to sort of balance it between the the past and the present and, and look for connections between some of the historical episodes that unfolded along the walls and then the present day. And it was really over time I sort of honed in on the story of the siege because it resonated in in various ways with present day Turkey in ways that I found you know, so sometimes not literal connections, but thematically, to me, it seemed to resonate in certain ways. So I just explored that and the structure developed in a very organic way, very kind of haphazard way. When I was reporting, I say this in the book, but when I when, when I was reporting as a journalist, you know, very often you would have your view of what the issues are and what the what the story of the day is. And then you go out and find people whose stories illustrate that. That's necessarily the way you, you need to work. But, you know, I feel quite strongly that really anyone has an extraordinary story and anyone is is interesting and I, and I wanted to do something which was more sort of bottom up in the sense that I would find people who I thought were sympathetic and just follow my instincts and just stick with them and then see what sort of emerged from their stories so it was a really it was a mesh between the ideas that I had that I wanted to explore and impose on the book and then the stories of the people I met which sort of rose organically from below as it were and so, you know, I, I absolutely didn't sit down. I mean, I tried to sort of work out structure, but the, the structure was always changing and it was very much uh, very much a sort of organic process, which is probably partly the reason why, you know, it took quite a long time. But <laughs> So the walls are this magnificent, unchanging symbol of Istanbul from past to present. But today, the areas that the walls pass through, they're often quite dangerous. And those areas are generally home to quite seedy characters, really. And it, that comes through in the book, you know, by focusing on the walls and the people around them that you meet there, you're also able to focus on overlooked or peripheral 
or marginal, non-elite aspects of society, basically. Was that a conscious choice on your part from the start of the project to focus on some of those overlooked aspects, getting away from, I suppose, the old cliche would be the old Jihangir bubble. But I mean, this is about as far away from the Jihangir bubble as you can get some of these uh, neighborhoods. So was yeah. that a deliberate decision on your part? Well, it wasn't initially, but then it sort of became it became a deliberate decision as the book evolved. I think I made a decision that everyone would be ordinary people. You know, they, they would be they wouldn't be people who are in the public eye in any serious way. I did, for example, interview quite extensively with one head of MP, Hudakaya, who's now very sadly is in prison. But um, she, she was going to be one of the sort of focuses of the book. But in the end, I admitted her story just because it stood, it stood out as her being someone who was, um, who was actually an MP. But um, this idea of the periphery and people being thrust to the margins and, and looking at those people who are at the margins of society was something that, that very much interested me. In various guises, you know, I, I sort of saw as I was researching the book and as I was writing it, that we have a tendency or, you know, societies have a tendency to push the things they don't want to the periphery in order to create the impression of a sort of ordered and functional society in urban space. And you see that in, in these urban redevelopment projects where, you know, the original residents of, of these, these neighbourhoods who are often poor or, or from different uh, religious or ethnic minorities are sort of thrust out to the periphery of the city. And, you know, in the same way, at one point in the book, I write about the cleaning of the Golden Horn by Bedret and Dalan in the 1980s and how, you know, the sewage was pumped into the Marmara Sea where it was assumed that it would all it would all just dissipate into the Black Sea. But of course, it, it didn't. And um, and in the same way, this sort of reordering of urban space to push people to the fringes is something that creates broader societal problems and causes you know, the breakdown of these communities. What I found so interesting about the walls is that is that the walls almost seem like they were built as this structure to preserve the city and its people from from destruction. And I felt like in a sort of oblique way, they're still fulfilling that because they are this sort of very large, complex stretch of urban space. And it's it's just through the nature of the ownership of them and the scale of them, or I mean, not the ownership, but the different jurisdictions in terms of who controls what and the scale of them. No sort of city authorities have ever really succeeded in sort of taming them and making them into a sort of a really functional space. So they are this sort of no man's land and they are a kind of place where outcasts and misfits and, and that sort of thing and criminals and so on are uh, are going and, uh, and and doing their business or finding sanctuary or not. And, and you know, and the communities along them are sort of uh, are similar. They're these very old communities that they're, they're quite they're quite poor they tend to be there's a turnover of population and you have different migrant groups coming in as, as people don't want to live there because there's a lot of crime but um on the other hand you know you're right in the middle of the city so so all of that very much in, interested me and you say in the book that you make this point that istanbul has grown so much since the walls are obviously built in the first place but uh, the walls now no longer mark the city's outer boundary but the beginning of its center and i've never really thought about it like that for some reason but it gets to this point that istanbul is constantly sprawling constantly developing and that is a theme in the book very strongly you know the destruction basically caused by development the displacement of people in that process the destruction of the old ways of doing things and obviously the environmental damage caused along the way 
And that is a, a constant theme throughout the book. Every chapter, I think, touches on this in some way. So how did you want to approach that issue of environmental ruin and endless development and sprawl that Istanbul seems to constantly be going through? It was tricky because to me, where I am in the world, and obviously I'm very aware of climate change and this sort of catastrophe that seems to be descending on us and which is, you know, driven by human development and the damage we're inflicting on the environment. So that was always in in my mind. But I was very aware that when I spoke to the people around the walls, they had by and large far more immediate economic concerns. I could walk around saying to them, well, what do you think about climate change? And they'd probably say they were worried, but it wasn't really it wasn't really on their radar. So I guess I tried to weave that side of things in where it seemed organic in their stories. You know, like there's one guy I spoke to who's a Kurdish activist and, you know, he happened to have worked at the new airport that's been built. And so that was a sort of a a sort of inroad into that. I, I think I think Turkey as a country reporting on it, you're constantly aware of the fact that this clash between human development and the natural world is is very intense. Istanbul alone, the province of Istanbul alone has more endemic plant species than the whole of the UK. And Turkey, you know, as a country, it, it stands at the meeting point of three different biogeographic regions, and it has this extraordinary wealth of flora and fauna. And at the same time, there is this very, very unrestricted, very rampant development and, and, a, and, a, and a sort of very strong developmentalist mindset within the government, which, you know, obviously goes back a long time, but is, is in sort of turbo, turbo mode now. And, um, you know, one of the things I tried to highlight in the book was the ascendancy of this economic model in which, you know, everything is being commodified, everything is being sold off both to sort of feed a political system, you know, the, the, the sort of system of patronage, which benefits Erdogan and his elite, but also just as part of a kind of a developmental mindset, which is in the ascendancy very much around the world. So that to me felt like a huge theme, which, you know, I had to incorporate and, and was probably my main preoccupation. But I, I tried to do it in a way which didn't overwhelm the stories of the people who I was talking to. Of course, in the book, as you say there, there are these pen portraits, really, of various different characters at various different points of life. Istanbul residents who you come into contact with, locals really with remarkable stories and personalities that you highlight. Sometimes these stories are amusing, often they're tragic, and very often these are people kind of ground down by life here in different ways, either economic or political or social pressure. How important was it to complement some of these bigger themes with this granular, on-the-ground, real-life stories that you show in the book? And are there any particular examples that you'd, that you'd want to highlight of these individuals? I mean, to me, they're the, the, the essence of the book. I mean, they're, they're having written it and looking back on it, I'm very happy I did it that way because the more I got to sort of know some of those people, the more I you know, I, the more I wanted to tell their stories and, you know, and I, I hope I hope they're happy with how they're how they're portrayed. You know, I, I, I worry about that, given how everything in Turkey is potentially so divisive and contested. But, um, yeah, I, I, I wanted to I wanted to write something that was was grounded in ordinary people's stories. One of the one of the reasons why that appealed to me is that I always had this 
image in my head of the the walls and this sort of extraordinary sort of epic history behind them of the siege and the sort of sort of millennium in which they protected Constantinople and all this stuff and then that all seems so sort of distant from the sort of present day reality of Turkey and and in fact the Byzant the, the Byzantine past seems very distant and then mirroring that in the future you have this sort of potential onrushing calamity which our societies might be heading towards and that feels somehow equally distant and unreal and so i i wanted to write something that was grounded in the present and which had those two things sort of past and future sort of looming but which was rooted very much in people's real lives one of these characters who features really throughout the book popping up at different times is jem and oh, he's yes. Sorry. quite a tragic figure with a very rough life story. He's this former heroin addict from Koja Mustafa Pasha. And through him, we get a glimpse of this growing, but I think largely underreported, especially internationally, problem of drug use in Istanbul, which in recent years has really reached crisis levels in certain areas of Istanbul's periphery. But it's not just there as well. I think also in more middle class areas, it's hugely noticeable how other drugs, cocaine, for example, is basically everywhere these days, pretty much openly done in, in some locations. And in other constituencies, crack use is, is also reportedly growing. And you hear stories, anecdotes, friends of friends who are affected. It's pretty alarming. So how did you want to reflect that issue in the book? What did you want to get across in the book about drug use, you know, the spread of different kinds of narcotics? You know, what does that tell us about today's Istanbul? I mean, I, th I think it's this rise is is to do with an array of different things. You know, in terms of the book, I was addressing it within the context of a broader decay of the idea of community and the sort of and the decay of kind of community closeness, which uh, to me, certainly when I came to Turkey was quite was quite striking. You know, I remember when I arrived in Istanbul, I felt I often felt safer on the street than I did when I was living in London. I remember looking at the sort of comparative crime statistics from that time and Turkey, you know, Istanbul was among the sort of safer of, of the of, of the you know, big European cities and certainly safer than, than American cities. And I always wondered why that was. And, you know, I, I think it has something to do with the fact that neighbourhood relations and community relations remained relatively stronger in Istanbul than they did in a lot of European cities. And, you know, if, if there were sort of kids out on the street causing trouble, Everyone in the neighborhood would know who they were, would know who their parents were. Their issues could be subsumed within the sort of structure of the neighborhood to some degree. And I think that the sort of social disruption that we've seen over the last few years, is by no means something that's happened overnight, but, but it's, you know, the, the process was continuing all the time I was in Turkey of people being uprooted, people moving, migration and um, various different factors have sort of undermined this community structure. I think that, um, you know, another big issue is obviously the role of social media and the way in which people spend time now and people engage in, in a way that has, has resulted slightly in the atomization of, you know, traditional communities to some degree. And so I think the issue of drug addiction, I was looking at sort of within that framework. And, you know, one of the things that Jen said is that he, he did a lot of work 
on drug rehabilitation in um you know in Essenyurt, which is uh which i think has the highest drug use of any uh, istanbul neighborhood and is a, is very much a um a place which has seen you know massive migration from lots of different sources over the last over the last few years and so that's how i was looking at i mean i think the other the other thing which um you know i would add about that is that i think the way our society is now globally our societies are it's very easy for someone who's towards the bottom of society in terms of what they have to see what people at the top have and to be aware of the gulf between their lives and the kind of life that they might aspire to and the impossibility of bridging that gulf throughout history we've sought ways to alleviate the stress that living in 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 society causes and the stress of differences in status and now those differences in status are more and more acute and um I, I think that to some degree that drives addiction. You know, on, on top, you know, there are a whole load of practical things on top of that, like in the way in which in recent years Turkey has become a, a new hub and a sort of a route for global cocaine trafficking, which it wasn't in the past. Someone more, someone who knows more about it than me, could give a completely different answer based solely on those kinds of factors as well. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Now, along with these sort of micro stories of individuals on the ground, obviously, as we've already mentioned, the book kind of intersperses these with the story of Istanbul's conquest in 1453 by the Ottoman Empire. And it kind of interweaves that story with these reflections on the present day. You write that that conquest, 1943, is, quote, an event that reverberates into the present as the apocalypse of one nation and pinnacle of triumph for another. It's also a talisman of modern Turkish identity and continually evoked by Erdogan, who has cast himself as a kind of modern Mehmet, Mehmet the Conqueror, in his quest to return Turkey to its Ottoman roots, both in culture and in international ambition. And you also write that one of the defining features, not just of the Erdogan era, but of the modern Turkish Republic, has been, quote, a rejection of a complex and often painful heritage in favour of a simpler, ideologised version of it. Every nation performs this kind of myth-making, but rarely with the kind of destructive, amnesiac eagerness that I'd seen in Turkey. So there's a lot to unpack there. Could you just talk a bit about that? How is that Ottoman history used and abused, basically, in present-day Turkey? And how did you want to reflect that in the book? It's funny because, I mean, on the one hand, you know, this tendency of Turkish nationalism to, you know, minimise and try to erase the country's non-Islamic past is something that I was interested in and, and which is, you know, very sort of sad to see within the broader context of the themes of the book, of the, the idea that, that this sort of old world is slowly being erased by this kind of process of relentless change. I found that in terms of Erdogan's use and abuse of uh, of the Ottoman past and the story of the siege, I feel some degree of sympathy with it, given how neglected that area was in the past. Like the way in which you know many Turks now lift up that era seems very sort of natural to me. You know, one of the things that appealed to me about that that story in terms of the siege was that um you know you have on the one hand this force of change and technical innovation, which was sort of encapsulated in Mehmet and his use of, you know, the sort of relatively new technology of gunpowder artillery in this sort of pivotal event in world history. 
he was very interested in engineering. He was very interested in in sort of technical development. And then sort of pitted against that, you had these walls, which are, they, they had been for a sort of millennium, the sort of main protector and guarantor of Constantinople and, um, and the Byzantines. And the Byzantines as a society, over time, they became quite backward looking. They believed that theirs was the holy empire and that when their city fell, it would mark the beginning of, of Judgment Day. And, you know, the walls had this massive sort of psychic importance as the thing which warded off destruction. And that clash between those two forces, this sort of relentless force of expansion, technological innovation, which in some way the Ottomans represented, and then this fundamentally conservative force of safeguarding, of, you know, holding back the flood, of preventing the end. The clash between those things I thought was very interesting and I thought had all kinds of resonances with how our world is today. You know, I was sort of cautious about it a bit because if you start drawing those kinds of parallels too hard, you sort of tie yourself up in knots. But to me, the sort of juxtaposition of that with our current times was quite interesting. And so that was one of the reasons why why the story of the siege became quite central to the whole book. You know, I, I kind of initially I thought I'll write about 1453 and all this sort of the cultural uses of of the siege and that sort of thing. I don't know. It, it ended up not interesting me that much, or just not being an avenue that I sort of organically went down. But one thing I'll say about it, which did strike me, is the way in which you have this very complex real heritage, and it's being kind of erased and replaced with with a new sort of fake version. Sometimes, literally, you know, you see this happening in the physical landscape of the city. You know, at one point, I give the example of the, the 1453 Panorama exhibition, where you can go and see a reenactment of the siege, or not reenactment, but, you know, a sort of panorama of the siege, complete with these huge sort of presumably polystyrene cannonballs lying around. And then if you walk 300 meters away, you can, actual, you can see the actual real cannonballs lying at the foot of the walls in this area that's almost inaccessible because it's so dangerous. You know, I actually tried to go there the other day to take some photos and um, I actually couldn't go there because there were, there were about 20 very dodgy looking guys sort of hanging all around there. And, and this, is, this is a couple of hundred meters away from where you have this exhibition. It's very bizarre to me that that's the case. And, you know, I, I saw it in another, in another kind of guise with this neighborhood, Tokludede, which I, you know, where, where I spent a lot of time. And um, you had these beautiful old Ottoman houses. And the first time I went there, when these houses were still standing, there was actually a group of tourists, Turkish tourists, who actually came and were given a tour around it. And then they're all knocked down and they're replaced with fake versions of them, which are being built for people who, who want to live somewhere, you know, which feels historical. Yeah, so that, 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 that was very interesting to me, that the fact that that was the case. It, it's sad as well, because I think that if you erase that kind of history in its original form, you know, you sort of narrow the, the, the whole sort of base on which your society rests in terms of the kind of sources you can draw on, the inspiration that different sections of society can, can take from, you know, from the physical landscape around them, from the urban landscape around them. Politically, Turkey has changed, obviously, significantly since your time reporting here, since your time when you arrived here. And as you get across in the book, there was a sense at the time of still really of contestation. I think things could have gone either way, really. There were multiple different paths. 
surprising developments could shift the narrative away from Erdogan in some way, challenge him in different ways. But it seems like now we're kind of settling much more into a a more consolidated authoritarian system where basically the die is cast and there's no way back, really. And that's a very different situation to how it was 15 years ago, perhaps. Could you just talk a bit more about that, you know, tease it out for us, that shift over the course of the years? How did you want to convey that? Well, to me, it was one of the most striking things that I that I came across while working on the book. I mean, the, the characters I was writing about, you know, I ended up following following their lives for five or six years. I didn't know where they were going to lead. But towards the end, there was quite an extraordinary convergence in terms of not necessarily their political attitudes, but that there was a, a convergence in terms of their acquiescence in one way or another to the sort of authoritarian system that's emerging in Turkey. I, I was talking to people from different parts of the political spectrum. I, I don't want to give away. I don't want to give away their stories. I guess, but you know, it, it was sometimes quite striking how people either disengaged from politics or left the country or. Or, you know, became disillusioned with the system, but also not really hopeful of being able to change it. And, you know, to me, their stories did sort of give some interesting insights into why Erdogan has been able to consolidate power so much. It's, you know, it's a mixture of, you know, oppressing and demoralizing the sections of society that oppose him. And then also using a sort of an economic incentive to keep the sections of society that support him in line. One striking shift, which I, I feel like I observed from the earlier years when I was in Turkey, was that, you know, I always thought in the past that he, he motivated, you know, he, his, his rule was based on a sort of positive motivation. He had this vision of Turkey as an improving society. He had injustices that he claimed to be correcting you know, he sought to inspire. And um, increasingly, I think that the AKP's model is, is it's more about, you know, basically saying like, well, if we weren't here, everything would fall apart. You know, we're the only people who are preventing things from, from getting worse. And they've made themselves seem sort of inevitable in that way. And, and that, that came across in the stories of the people I, I talked to quite strongly. You know, it's, it's tremendously sad to see. I, the one thing I'd say, though, is that I, I listened the other day to your episode with, um, was it Berk Essen? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, with, with Berk Essen. You know, he was saying how viewed in the sort of long term, in the sort of long term historical, taking the long view of it, Turkey's always gone back and forth between authoritarian periods and more open periods. I have no doubt that that will continue. You know, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm like pessimistic in, in a broader sense. There's the inevitability that things at some point will, will 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 change, and I believe they can, you know, they can change for the better, and that they will. One of the um, episodes which I wrote about in the book, and which was a sort of massive moment for me in terms of my relationship with Turkey, was um, the the Gezi Park protests, and um, they were a big moment for me because they made me reassess my relationship with Turkey. I, I covering the protests, I, I identified very strongly with the demonstrators. You know, I'll be honest about it, but. Equally, I thought, you know, my duty as a journalist is to look at every section of society. And, and I thought, how do I balance the fact that there's a massive series of injustices that are being performed, which I, I need to bear witness to, but also that there's a whole section of society who perceive this totally differently 
not through any fault on their part, just based on the fact of where they're from and what their lives are and what their background is. It made me sort of think more about how I wanted to write about Turkey, but it also, I had this very strong feeling that that those protests were mischaracterized so, so aggressively afterwards. And I think I saw in those protests when they were happening in the kind of solidarity across different sections of society, something that needs to be talked about and built on. That remains a kind of example of what Turkey at some point in its future can revisit and talk about what happened there and look at the positives in it. I talk about that in the book, and I do say in the book that this probably sounds quite naive, and it probably is, but I, I, I definitely feel like there is a duty of optimism, particularly for someone like me who isn't living on a day-to-day basis with what's happening. In the book, you actually express quite a bit of ambivalence about Istanbul, about a number of different aspects, not just living here, not just the kind of day-to-day love-hate relationship familiar to anyone here, but also more broadly about the project or the work that you were doing, the assumptions that many people had about what you were doing. You talk about the implicit authority that you were invested in as a foreign correspondent, especially as a Western journalist writing about Turkey and the assumptions on on readers' part that you are there to basically, quote-unquote, explain the country. And you give this impression of being increasingly uncomfortable with that mission, basically, with that authority. Could you just expand on that a bit, that sense of ambivalence that you had, both about Istanbul, but also about your position in it over time? Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely one of the driving personal factors behind the book was that um, as I spent more time in Turkey and as I got to know the country better, I became less and less confident in my own insights and analysis of the country. Like sometimes I, I would I would um, think about England and I would think, would I dare to pronounce on English society and analyse English society in the same way that, you know, I'm constantly invited to and I'm writing about Turkish society as if it's like this kind of subject to be sort of dissected and analysed. And I thought, no, I don't think I could do that. I couldn't do it about my own society. So why, why can I do it about Turkey? It's only really because my degree of, you know, probably not ignorance in, in, the, in the literal sense of the country's politics, because I probably know Turkish politics better than I know British politics, but ignorance on a deeper level about society and about what it is like to really be someone of that country. Yeah, I felt increasingly uncomfortable with that authority. And Gezi was one of the things that did that. The other thing was my father-in-law at one point was being prosecuted. And like hundreds of thousands of people in Turkey he had a case against him. He he was, you know, he's he's elderly and has a pacemaker. And, you know, we were, my wife and I were living with him. You know, we were worried he was going to be arrested. And, and I found that as the situation in the country got worse, A, I felt increasingly angry. And also I felt this feeling of like, am I entitled to this anger? Like, is this, you know, the the anger both felt justified, but also felt inappropriate to me. And I thought I I would like to try and somehow undercut that authorial authority. Yeah, that that authority, which, um, you know, which you which you described. Um, It's difficult. It was almost it's sort of an impossible trip to pull, because at the same time, I have my own ideas on Turkey. Some of them are very strong ideas. And and so, you know, I thought, well, I, you know, I need to include them, but I also tried to write it in such a way as to allow for the fact that I might be wrong. <laughs> and, um, 
And, and so that's why you know, it links back to what you asked earlier. That's really why it was important to me to have these voices and for the main element of the book to rise up from the voices of these people was that I, I wanted it to sort of be centered on them. And to conclude, really, I wonder what, having written this book, you know, what next? Are you going to be working again on Turkey or what's the next project that you're looking at professionally? I think I, at the moment I'm thinking that I might not write, I, might, I don't think I'll write my next book about Turkey. You know, I want to sort of have a different relationship with Turkey, I think, for a while. I do have another idea for a book that I want to write, sort of building on some of the stuff that I've just talked about in terms of my, my relationship as a, as a writer with the people I'm writing about and, and trying to develop that. Actually, I was thinking about possibly writing about um, the town in England where I worked as a local journalist, Crawley, and maybe going there and doing in some ways a similar kind of thing, but also trying to grapple with my relationship to my own country. <laughs> Again, I think it would be something where it wouldn't be, I would allow it to develop organically and see what emerges. But I would be very interested to do something like that. I think it would be a tough sell because, you know, Crawley isn't exactly, you know, the, the, the walls of Constantinople in terms of the sort of interest <laughs> it will evoke in the, in the average reader. So, so I'm not sure uh, what the publishers would say about it. But, um, but that's, that's one idea I have at the moment. In terms of writing about Turkey in the future, you know, I'm sure I'll 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 come back to it, but um, I don't have an immediate immediate plan to to write another Turkey book. I don't think. <laughs> well, from the sublime to the ridiculous, that would be, wouldn't it? Istanbul to Crawley, creepy Crawley. <laughs> um. You know, Crawley's a, a, a you know Sussex. You know, there are lots of well-to-do, smart middle-class towns, and then you have Crawley, which is this sort of big new town up there at the top of Sussex and uh, you know uh, all the people in Horsham and neighbouring towns sort of tend to look down on Crawley but for me it was by far the most fun and interesting place to work and as a local journalist you know you would knock on on doors in Horsham and anyone who opens the door would sort of look at you as if someone's laid a bag of flaming dog turd on their doorstep but in Crawley you would go and people would invite you into their home and talk to you about what's going on and you know it, it was just a much warmer more interesting richer experience also i uh, you know i'd like to sort of reckon with the kind of moral problem inherent in particularly in uk journalism which is quite exploitative and you know that's quite interesting as well so yeah there's various stuff i i, I feel like there's interesting stuff there to explore but um but i'll have to see that was Alexander Christie Miller. Many thanks to him for joining for episode 212. Remember, we do need your support to keep Turkey Book Talk going, and you can give that support by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Membership gets you a 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 Euros, or £2.50 per episode. Do also rate the podcast or write a positive review wherever you listen. Spread the word, give us a shout out on your social media accounts. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter slash X, Facebook or Instagram accounts, or all of them. Follow me, William Armstrong, on Blue Sky. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. 
Finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is, among many other things, a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They also publish high quality, original, on the ground reporting, and they've got a Slack channel for signed up members who want more. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.